Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. And it's time for another female first. Yay! Which means we are joined once again by our friend and coworker Eve. I have returned. The bestest. <laughs> We're so glad you have returned. Yeah, really glad you haven't left us yet. <laughs> yes, it's always a, a fun time when we get when we get Eve's in the studio. You know, having one more person right. to add to the conversation. That very like easy, soothing monotone. Yeah, I actually have a weird thing where I like I'm not into ASMR or anything, but. There's certain YouTube videos I watch that are scary, but they're delivered in such a way that I just am like, oh, yes, this horrible thing happened. <laughs> so there, it's just delivered. It's the delivery yes. and the tone right. that happens, but they're talking about horrible things. Not necessarily horrible things oh. because uh, it's not like true crime. It's more ghost sighting or okay, something. Okay, is it that one okay. dude that oh, has that really weird the, like, like top monotone? 10 type thing? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yes. I know what you're talking yes. about. I love it's, it. It's, it's oddly satisfying. Okay, but I, I can't listen to it. I have to read it. I can't. Yeah, I get yeah. frustrated real quick because it's. I'm like, all right, I'm just gonna read it because he seems very cool. The dude. I don't know if it's the same dude that's uh, narrating, yeah. but I'm like, I got it because it's not building up to the. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, I love it's it. It's such an opposite of what you're seeing. Like the ghost is here, but yeah. it's like the ghost showed up, and there it is. Did you see it? Do you believe it? And, the, and then it's like things that are. Things that a lot of people would agree, like, just didn't happen. Right. Instead yeah. of the most plain, like, this obviously happened. Right. Like, <laughs> obviously there was a flying saucer in the sky. <laughs> and there's no discrepancy in that at all, right. which right. I appreciate. Right. I mean, right. sure, sure. I'm glad <laughs> you all knew what I was talking uh, yeah, about. Yeah, no, I know exactly what you're talking about. Because I started, like, watching them, and I'm thinking, man, I'm just going to have to turn the volume down and just read it. I'm just going to read it and go back and look at it. Oh, that's interesting. Because I know some people will write in and they'll say in the most complimentary, I, I think they truly mean it as a compliment, your voice puts me to sleep. And I'm like, cool. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I mean, if it's to you. Yeah, people have written oh, and said that to me. That your voice, uh, mm-hmm. I think you have a very nice voice. Yeah. Thank you. I think the three of us had that. Radio voice. You think so? I've always been very self-conscious about my voice, honestly, oh. especially when I was younger, because I always thought that my voice was deep. Yeah, and I'm like, well, it was nothing I ever had a real sort of like feelings around, but like I would think it from time to time. I think the way, yeah, I think our, all of our voices are fairly deep. Yeah, and that usually is like a more soothing tone. Mm-hmm. Definitely been complimented for my voice, which freaked me out a little bit because I'm like, dude. <laughs> And yeah, it's just usually dudes. Calm down. <laughs> like, that's so creepy to me, and I don't know what to do with you. But to be fair, like, I- Idris Elba, if he was here, I'd be like, just talk to me so I can fall asleep to your voice. Yeah. But that's just me. I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I think, like, the smooth, like, not necessarily our enunciation or of that, but just the tone. Mm-hmm. I could see that. I'm here for it. All mm-hmm. right. I think we can be late night radio, soft Ooh. rock. I'm here for it. Contempo, adult contempo. Yeah. Perfect. Well, anyway. we'll, in our nice deliveries, we have an amazing person <laughs> so to talk excited. about today. Um, who did you bring for us, Eve? Today, we'll be talking about Harriet E. Wilson, who was an author in the 19th century. So she was the first black woman to publish a novel. 
And she made she did the first novel published by a black person in the United States. So there was Clotel, which was a book by William Wells Brown, who was a black man, which was the first novel published by an African-American period. But that was published in London in 1853. And it didn't come to Boston until 1864. Mm-hmm. So there are those caveats. Like, right. obviously, there's a history of, like, who was the black person to do this? And what was the label for this? And the woman? And... They were African-American, but where did it happen? So obviously when we have first, we have all these other firsts that are surround that single first. Right. right. So that was another one of them. But it was also Harriet E. Wilson's novel, and it was called Our Nig. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about that obviously a lot in today's episode. But it was possibly the first novel by a person of African descent in all of North America. And we'll get to this later on as well. Teaser, teaser. <laughs> but there was another woman in Brazil who was of African descent who also published a novel in the, at the same time. Mm-hmm. Their two names are mentioned together a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. So like a little bonus. A little bonus. Just, just a little bonus. slight slide yeah. in there. And <laughs> really not, not too much. Oh, it's a shout out. Just a shout out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love it. Again, yeah. context so important with these first. So. Right. Very glad that that you bring that when you bring these. I try. You do. Love it. We love it. We do. So there's not a lot of information out there on Harriet E. Wilson, and we'll talk about the discovery process of the book because for a long time it wasn't known. She wasn't known about, it wasn't known that she was a black woman. It wasn't known that she was the author of this book. Um, and it's in our very recent history that we figured all this out. We, I say we like I figured anything out. When I say we, I say other people who are like professionals and stuff and do history yes. and scholarship <laughs> and all those fancy things. Uh, um, but yeah, so a lot of what we do know about her, though, is through the things that those historians and scholars have collected about her life. Mm-hmm. But those things are still very few and far between. And a lot of what has been pulled out of it has been kind of like this corroboration between what happened in the novel, which is assumed to be autobiographical, and then what happened according to records Mm -hmm. that are kept, that have been kept of Harriet E. Wilson. Mm -hmm. But, and, and so she was somebody that has been on my list for a long time who I wanted to talk about, obviously, because I'm interested in literary things. Mm-hmm. And I was in this space where I was just thinking, what am I going to talk about about her? Because there isn't so much known about her life and the stuff that we say did happen may not be the case. We're right. just deducing those things from the information that we do have. But then I thought about it and I was like, well, she's probably the person I need to talk about the most because that's going to happen so frequently. It's like, well, we don't know anything about... There was already so much of a span where her book wasn't talked about right. at all because we didn't know who wrote it. Right. right. And she wasn't and, given credit for it. For and sure. she wasn't given credit for it. And so now for me to say, oh, because there's not that much information about her, I don't know if this can fill a whole amount of time. It just does such a disservice to her right. legacy, to her honor, and to everybody who cares about literary history and women's history and just learning that, hey, you know, it's okay for us to speak about, it's good for us to discuss these people who have been such an integral part of right. the history, but also there isn't that much known about them, and that's okay. Right. Yeah, I completely agree, and I struggled with that for a while because there there would be topics I wanted to talk about, and I just want to read everything about them, and, and it would be so hard to find credible information, but I didn't want that to stop us from talking about those right. things. And you can 
I think there's a conversation to be had and is worth having around why that information isn't there. Right. Yes. Yes. Um, ooh, there's a huge conversation, especially when it comes to how much was not documented. And it's also it's interesting to think about that kind of documentation and then what Harriet E. Wilson was actually talking about in her book. She right. was talking about life as a free black person in a pre-Civil War. And so just how much of her, in her actual life, documentation didn't happen. But in thinking about the idea of slavery, the institution of slavery, and how many families weren't documented or were documented incorrectly and what labels were given to people like mulatto. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So I just think it's interesting to think about how we today have gathered and think about her documentation and then what she was actually talking about in her novel, Our Nig. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, it's kind of astounding, I mean, that it's recent, as you said, recent discovery. So <laughs> history, you never know right. what you'll find. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm excited it also kind of brings out the point, how many things have we lost? Like, yes. how many things do we not know with exactly. this small discovery? Had this not been a coincidental moment of, oh, oh, and then putting, of course, putting all that hard work to putting it together. At the same time, look at what we probably have missed. Oh, you, got, you have to wonder of what vast amounts of conversation and then all of kind of history, what was documented and what wasn't, because also at that point in time, education was not offered to everyone, as we know, Mm -hmm. and equality was far from happening for anybody except for white men, let's just Mm -hmm. be really honest. It's kind of familiar, but not that extreme. And talking about also her separation, and I know you're going to go into it, I'm excited about it, but the difference between the South and the North at that Mm -hmm. point in time is also kind of like, it wasn't as great as you think. Oh, yeah. Um, I think that that's a myth that's been busted a lot in right. recent history, for a lot of people at least. I know that my education coming up when it came to U.S. history was very uh, limited mm-hmm. and didn't talk about a lot of things or provide context for a lot of things that was related to black life in, right. in America. And in the field that we are in media and the things that we think about um, as feminists, it's just we understand living in the South, you know, right. there's nothing there's nothing that beats experience. Right. Like something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. Um, so we actually live in the place that so many other people look at from the outside and say, this is how it is. This is this land of like, you know, all the misconceptions right. about the South and also accurate perceptions of the right. South, but that have more nuance. And that's so in the case of what Harriet E. Wilson touches on in her book. And we're about to go through the whole story. But yes, that's a great point to bring up in the beginning because just to lay the groundwork for this conversation is that, sure, there's a North and there's a South Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the geographical boundaries that we create or have literally artificially created. But there is some, like, obvious artificial boundaries, but contextually still actual boundaries (laughs) um, between the North and the South because of the way that the colonies were divided and the way that, you know, Civil War, yada, yada, yada. Um, This is not that kind of lesson today. (laughs) But the point of this is to say that it wasn't a clear definition between these people in the South fought for this, for this reason, um, and the South was wholly and completely racist, and the North was wholly and completely not racist. Right. Like, that's not how it was. White abolitionists in the North, um, if we go back to the days of when, you know, there was the Back to Africa movement, the reasons, the different reasons that people had for wanting black people to go back to Africa was not just for them to have a better life. A lot of the people who wanted free black people to go back to Africa, to go to Liberia, to go over there, 
to the continent of Africa was because they didn't want them in they didn't want them in the U.S. Right. <laughs> and so there's just nuance. Like yes. So, and that's one of the big things about her book Our Nig and, and how it was different from so many other stories that were being told at the time of slavery. Yeah, so let's get in. We've done a lot of talking about, like, what it's about, but I feel like I need to give <laughs> the actual story. <laughs> There's a lot of buildup, so we're here. Build up, so you're expecting this to be so amazing, and trust me, it's amazing in the sense that it's literary history, but it's not, like, the greatest, <laughs> uh, the most happy story. <laughs> right, all right. All so right. here okay. we go. Our Nig uh, is the name of the book, and the full title is Our Nig or Sketches from the Life of a Free Black in a Two-Story White House, North, showing that slavery's shadows fall even there. And that's my favorite part of the title, showing that slavery's shadows fall even there, because that shows that awareness that she had of these misconceptions about the North, like how people thought that, and shadows, just like, that's a great word. Um, How people thought that that was a place that wasn't affected by the brutal atrocity of everything, the whole history of enslavement and racism Mm -hmm. in the United States. So the book is accepted as being autobiographical, like I said earlier, but it's also works within the space of the sentimental novel, which was a thing at the time. And then it also references the conventions of the 19th century slave narrative, which was also a thing that Mm -hmm. happened a lot. And it's been argued also that the text is often satirical. So I've seen people write about, you know, how it's, it is autobiographical, but we must recognize, and I think this is a great point to bring up, we must recognize Harriet E. Wilson's power as a storyteller, right. that she wasn't just a person who was writing, it was just my life and I'm just going to put it on the page. Like she was actually thinking about semantics, the, what she, the context of things that she was talking about, the story she was trying to tell, how she was telling it in the artistic way, you know? She was also a storyteller. Mm -hmm. She wasn't just like, I'm putting my life on the page. So the book was published on September 5th, 1859. And in the preface, there's a very short preface in the beginning of the book. Wilson says, and it's just credited as H-E-W in this part, but this is what she says or writes, deserted by kindred, disabled by failing health, I am forced to some experiment which shall aid me in maintaining myself and child without extinguishing this feeble life. And so she goes on to say, I have purposely omitted what would most provoke shame in our good anti-slavery friends at home. And she goes on to ask her, quote, colored brethren to support her and purchase her Mm -hmm. book so she could support her child. Mm -hmm. And we'll see the same story in the text of the novel itself. Um, And so... That was kind of a call to action or a call for help on her part, saying, I need you to read this book. I need all the people who support me and defend me. I'm going to censor myself, essentially, is what she was saying in right. some in some aspects. But I need y'all to support me so that I can help my child. Right. <laughs> and that is so, that is a way to begin a book, isn't right. it? Yeah. Right. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> I love start with the call to action right away. I mean, hey, put it right up front. And I'm just in here thinking, and I go through this conversation in my head so much, like, what am I creating my work for? Like, what am I writing for? And I, like, struggle with this so much. And then I see something like this. I'm like, she was doing it so she could have her child. Like, so she could take care of her child. I'm like, what am everything that I'm doing just, like, doesn't matter. (laughs) But (laughs) I know that's not true. But, like, I do, like, seeing stuff like this, it just helps me put into perspective, like, why I 
am involved in the artistry that I am involved in and and right. the struggles and just how interesting it is that she was creating art, but she was also it was also a utility. It was art right. and utility at the same time. Well, it was very honest, and that's what makes it like heartbreakingly beautiful. It's just very honest. Like, this is why I'm doing this. Not only am I going to say this, and I'm going to leave some of the bad parts out because it's not going to be sellable. She knew that. If I don't leave some of, you know, if I don't censor myself a little bit, as well as please understand I'm doing this out of need. Like, it's kind of almost like, hey, this is not just for my own fame. This is, this, there's a reason for this. Well, it's like she was almost like her own PR person. Right. Like she did her own media training yeah. for herself. And she was like, <laughs> I know what I need to say to make sure that I get people on my side. Right. <laughs> and right. I'm not, I know what I don't need to say. Right. Um, so I'm going to not say those things. And I am going to say those things. And I'm going to do what I can to see if I can get the support that I need from people right. who I don't know. Unfortunately, that did not happen. Right. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. So we'll get to that when we get to the story of her life. We have some more of our conversation, but first we have a quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Continuing the actual story of itself of our NIG, it's about the mistreatment of a, quote, mulatto woman um, mixed named Alfredo, a.k.a. Fredo, in New England just before the Civil War. And her mother in the story was Mag Smith, who was a lower-class white woman, and Mag married a black man named Jim, who was part owner of a coal delivery business. And the two of them have two daughters together. The older daughter is Fredo, and Jim dies a few years after the two of them are married. Jim and Mag were married. And so soon, Mag marries another black man, and she abandons her children. And at that point, the Belmonts, which were a family of white middle-class farmers in Boston, take Alfredo in, but they make her work as this kind of indentured servant, and they call her Our Nig. Mm. They call her Our Nig. Mm -hmm. Um, And so Miss Belmont and her daughter, Mary, are basically the, like, they abuse Fredo. And just, like, terrible people, um, physically and psychologically abusive. And her living conditions are unhealthy, Fredo's are, and the rest of the family is complicit because they're basic, they basically sit back and say nothing. Like, they give her a little bit of egging on, and they're supportive in a way, but they don't actually do anything to right. help Fredo's situation. Right. One day, Miss Belmont hits Fredo on the head for not bringing wood back quickly enough. And so Fredo stands up for herself and refuses to be beaten again. And she does get a little bit of encouragement in that way from the family who, who tells her like, hey, you can stand up for yourself. Um, but there's only some, y'all know a lot about storytelling. There's only so much you can like, so much you can give to the person who, who's like, hey, right. you, you can stand up for yourself. It's like, well, Fredo actually has to take the action of standing right. up for herself. So right. I'm not really going to I mean, right. you've seen so much abuse happen already. Right. Anyway, over the next year of her servitude, Fredo is not threatened again with that intensity of violence. And her servitude ends when she's 18. So just think about how young she was when right, yeah. all of this is happening. She was a child when she was abandoned, was still a child when she was a servant, and was still a child when she was being abused. And just imagine the amount of even in this fictional tale, you know, right. thinking of that is also autobiographical. Give and take, we don't know how exactly how much is taken and given, but 
just that happens so young. Like right. she's not, you're still not finished developing. Oh, those are your formative years. Yeah. It's when you're like developing life viewpoints and mm-hmm. understandings of how the world works. Yeah. And she left uh, at that point when she had basically nothing and she was in very poor health and a Christian woman named Mrs. Moore takes her in and teaches her how to make straw hats. And so she begins supporting herself, Fredo does, with that skill. But soon a guy walks into her life, a black man named Samuel, and they get married and he makes a living giving he makes a living giving speeches about his life of enslavement that didn't right. happen. Right. <laughs> oh right. wow. <laughs> He's never been to the South right. and <laughs> he does this to garner the support of abolitionists. So, I mean, get it how you live, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta play that game. Yeah. The marriage wasn't a good one. And Fredo ended up giving birth to a son at a poorhouse. And Samuel shows up in her life and leaves again. And eventually Fredo finds out that Samuel has died. So Fredo is in poor health, is unable to support her child on her own. So she has to put her child in foster care. She starts writing her story in story, hoping that the story is successful enough to make her money to take care of her child. Um, So we see the parallel already. That's already been established. And that's basically how the story ends, her appeal to people saying, hey, help me. Right. Mm -hmm. There's some symmetry there. Yes. (laughs) A lot of symmetry, at least... Don't want to, it's kind of, I'm trying to think, the Ouroboros, like the snake eating the tail. Like, because a lot of, yes, a lot of symmetry, but it's like a lot of that symmetry was pulled from the story itself, too. Right. Mm -hmm. There there are some facts that we're about to dig into or some inferences that we're about to dig into from that have been learned and collected by scholars about her actual life. So, our nigga itself was unlike other slavery era stories because it wasn't about Southern slaveholders just being the, like, villains of the story. Instead, it was about Northerners who were abolitionists, who were committing atrocities. Mm-hmm. And it went mostly unnoticed after it was released, and it took over 100 years for it to come back into the public sphere and to our recognition. But... You know, there are some ideas about why that may have happened that could be because it touched on polarizing themes like interracial marriage. Mm -hmm. It could be because it depicted the racism of northern white folks. And it also could be because people thought that Wilson was white before we found out that who she was. And, yeah, it's hard to tell the extent to which the book was based on her life and what she made up. Um, But it is widely considered to be largely autobiographical. So, on to uh, Wilson's life Mm -hmm. itself, now that we've covered what the story is about in broad strokes. Though a lot of things have evolved over time with us understanding more about her life and gathering more documents, obviously, as these things work. Uh, She was born Harriet E. Adams in Milford, New Hampshire in March of 1825, And she was possibly born to a black man named Joshua Green and a white washerwoman named Margaret. And her nickname was Hattie. After her father died and her mother abandoned her, parallel with the story, when she was a child, she left. She was left to become an indentured servant with Nehemiah Hayward and the Hayward family. 
Um, his wife was Rebecca Hutchinson, and they came from a pretty well-off family with abolitionists in it. She, Harriet left the Haywards when she was 18, parallel with the story. Mm-hmm. She was in poor health at that time, and she started working for other white families, and one woman taught her hat-making skills. And in 1851, she married a lecturer named Thomas Wilson, who pretended he was enslaved <laughs> uh-huh. but escaped. And in his lectures and his speeches, he decried the horrors of slavery. But he told Harriet that, hey, I was never enslaved. Huh. And they had a son, George Mason Wilson, who was born in 1852. He was born on a poor farm in an unhealthy environment. Um, but not long after that, Thomas left the family and Harriet was still ill and impoverished. And so she left her son with white foster parents and wrote to earn money. And Thomas Wilson soon died at sea. He went off to sea. And Harriet at that point likely travels around Massachusetts and New Hampshire working as a seamstress, a servant, or selling hair products. So she did have a hair product line which she came out with. And she started writing Our Nig for the same reasons, you know. She copyrighted Our Nig in August of 1859, and it was published by George C. Rand and Avery in Boston the next month. So Harriet's son died of fever less than six months after Our Nig was released when he was only seven years Mm -hmm. old. And that was a thing that happened, like people died from fever back then. And We already talked about the kind of conditions. You know, they weren't living in the greatest conditions. So, yeah, in the early 1860s, she likely worked as a servant for some time. And she became involved with the spiritualist movement, which if you're not familiar with the spiritualist movement, um, and this is not for Annie because I I know Annie knows all about the spiritualist movement. I don't know about you, Samantha, but I know know Annie's into horror things. So you are too, though. Yeah. (laughs) Not on this level, but definitely up there. I just want to say to any spiritualist listening, I don't always assume there's horror involved. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. I'm just thinking like... Right. It it comes up. Mythical and all those types of things. I figure it's in the realm of the things that you like are... Paying attention to? Yes. That is absolutely (laughs) a fair assessment. (laughs) (laughs) Because the movement was based on this belief that there were spirits of the dead and that people could communicate with spirits of the dead and mediums were often the people who could communicate with spirits of the dead. Um, I know we've seen the black and white photos of people around the table and heard about all the, like, fake things that happened, the people. Yeah, that was the spiritualist movement. Um, and she, Harriet herself, was described as a medium in contemporary documents. She gave lectures, sometimes entranced in those lectures, in Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Maine, and Connecticut. And that involvement in spiritualism continued for years and years. Uh, for instance, she speaks at the fourth annual spiritualist camp meeting in Massachusetts at one point. She was also involved in the formation of children's progressive lyceums, which were essentially the spiritualist version of Sunday schools for children. Oh, wow. And throughout the 1870s into the 1890s, she's listed as a trance reader and a lecturer and worked as a housekeeper at some point during that time. And in 1870, she married John Gallatin Robinson in Boston. 
So in 1900, she is described as a nurse at the home of the Cobb family in Quincy, Massachusetts. And that year, that same year, she dies in the hospital in Quincy. And she died of what was listed as inanition, which basically means exhaustion from lack of nourishment. And she was buried in the Cobb family plot. So that's not everything that we've deduced about her story from documents and the novel, but that is a large overview of like her her story and honestly a lot of what we know. So that is, yeah, that's it. But the other part of this larger story that her story is contained in is the dis- or rediscovery or uncovering or recovering or whatever you want to call it of right. the novel itself. Our Nig itself was thought to be the work of a white author, but there was the book that people thought was the first novel by an African-American woman before we found out about Our Nig was Iola Leroy or Shadows Uplifted, and that was by Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, and that was released in 1892, which was much later than you yes. know we figured out now Our Nig was written. In the early 1980s, historian and critic Henry Louis Gates Jr., which I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with because he has, like, very public-facing historian and, like, does a lot of research on history, people, families' histories and lineages and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And he found a copy of it in a bookstore, and he found evidence that the author of the book was a black woman who lived in Milford, New Hampshire, before the Civil War. And so we're like, oh, You know, this is upending things that we thought we knew about this literary history and who was a part of it. And so he and his colleagues, um, many people, Gates wasn't the only one to start uncovering stuff about her. And there was a scholar named Barbara A. White who also looked into community records um, in Milford to learn more about Wilson's life. Those were publishing records. That was census information. And the death certificate listed her son as black. And that helped confirm that his mother, Harriet, was a black woman and her authorship of the book itself. And so in 1983, Gates published a version of Our Nig, and that's kind of when it came back into our site. So it came back into part of the conversation we were having about who was part of the early history of black authorship in the United States and in the Americas. Um, Gates has called the book a complex response to Uncle Tom's Cabin, And novelist and poet Alice Walker has said of the discovery, quote, I sat up most of the night reading and pondering the enormous significance of Harriet Wilson's novel, Our Nig. It is as if we just discovered Phyllis Wheatley or Langston Hughes, who are obviously other big names in the history of poetry and the literary tradition in the U.S., And ever since then, you know, she's, it's been something a lot more um, scholarship and conversation has been around. And even in April of 2003, the Harriet Wilson Project was formed in Milford, New Hampshire, which is a resource that you can go to to, you know, learn what else is out there about her. Mm-hmm. And it was formed to raise awareness about her life and about her work. And they organized local conversations and discussions of Wilson's work. And they commissioned the creation of a memorial statue to her. So, yeah, uh, that is a lot of what we know about her life. And that is a little bit about the context around the uncovering of the book. And the legacy of that is just how... First of all, we're always learning more about who did what, right? Mm-hmm. So before that, 
we thought that a black woman didn't publish something in English. That is an important part of this. Mm -hmm. Um, In English in the U.S. before 1892, I think it was. And that's not the case. And it's just like that kind of information is consistently coming out. And we were just learning about that in the early 1980s. Leaves for us to think about what else is uncovered. Mm -hmm. And not only that, her work was also just so unlike other stories that were being told in that realm at the time and was pretty bold and meaningful. I think it's interesting that it was meaningful to her life like so deeply because it was connected to financial hardship and her own personal hardship and something that she needed to do for herself. Um, I can only imagine what her thought process was. I can't, I'm I'm not a spiritualist, so I uh, cannot communicate with the dead, but... I can only imagine that, like, she really needed to get this story down on paper. Even there was some other sort of purpose behind it beyond just needing to take care of her son, which was a big deal. But it was—she was telling a story that not many other people, as we know it today, were telling it away. She was framing it in a way that was original, like saying, hey, (laughs) people in the North do this too. Right. And is more powerful because because it was her story and told through a vehicle of fictional, like, artistry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's a really interesting legacy to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that is the, the kind of intersection there of... I, I know a lot of people, when they think of artists, they think of the traditional starving artist who moves to L.A. and, you know, does that all that thing. But there is... Sometimes I think some people just feel... Like this need, I have to share this story. It's important. And also, I have a financial need and I have like a child and all those things coming together to give. It's just like a, a very important story that needed to be told and all of these things happen to coincide with that right. and make it happen. Yeah, it does feel like a conspiring, doesn't it? A, the best kind of conspiring. Like, all these things conspire to have Gates find it and bring it back into right. our awareness. And a long time, like 150 years, are that that's a long time. Um, yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, it's not too long because it happened, right. you know? We got, we got the opportunity to learn about her life because... It took so long because, right. you know, now we're sitting here and we're able to talk about it because it was um, that story of her life and of her creation of the work was able to come back to our awareness. So right. it's definitely a good thing. So we do have a little bit more for you, but we're going to pause for one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we're back. I will bring up, too, which I teased earlier, um, the other person who published a novel around the same time, and her name was Maria Firmina Dos Reis. She was a Brazilian woman of African descent. She wrote the first novel by a Brazilian woman, and the name of that novel was Ursula. It depicted life under slavery in Brazil, and it was also published, like Our Nig, in 1859. And that work may be the first non-autobiographical work of narrative fiction by a woman of African descent in the Americas. Wow. 
super interesting because obviously this is about survival for her. None of this necessarily like, yes, she has an outlet and obviously she was very creative. And when you go from being just servitude to she was she was a dressmaker. Did I read that at one point? I think was, she might have been a dressmaker. Yeah. And then... So, yeah, she was. I, okay. Yeah. So she was a dressmaker to actually writing a book to becoming a medium slash a spiritualist who taught children. And it was said that she was teaching white children mm-hmm. at that point in time, which seemed to be significant mm-hmm. at that point too. She, she is a true survivor in the most creative ways that you could think of. That, those are not things I would have put together <laughs> in one individual. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. And then also knowing that she wrote this book on a scale of, okay, this is my story. I can't say too loudly because people not might not respect if they are too tragic, even though it's fairly tragic <laughs> in the book. And then talking about the fact that also in her real life, there are actual abolitionists around her, if I read that correctly. And she's like, yeah, y'all are doing all these things to free the slaves. That's great and all, but I'm in here <laughs> suffering and no one really cares yeah. what's happening. I mean, yeah, it's it's for perspective. It's like there are a lot of different types of oppression, right? right. right. Um, and yeah, so while it's just really interesting that she was pointing out how awful it was <laughs> and to be in the North at that time, it's like that that there was no clear division of just because black people were in the North and they were free doesn't mean that they were free from oppression. Right. <laughs> so... Right. Put simply, and yeah, I just I, I agree with you. Like her life, she was very resourceful, obviously very uh, persistent, because there was a lot of hardship in her life. But also her life, and I try to do this a lot when I think back about, especially about uh, black people or oppressed peoples in general's lives. Um, when I talk about them, not talking about them solely in the way where it's like their oppression or hardship defined their stories, right. yeah. but. It was a part of her story. That was a big part of her story. That was that really determined a lot of the ways in which she had to move, right? right. Which is like writing this book. Right. Um, but at the same time, it's clear that she was still able to have a love for life. Right. She was still able to participate in the spiritualist movement because it probably wasn't something that was well, like it wasn't a thing. She she lived for a while, which right. is great. But like, it was something that was clearly fulfilling for her spiritually mm-hmm. um, and emotionally um, beyond just like. It being a financial boon to her life. Right. So I do love to think about how skilled she had to be across right. so many different areas, but also how she still made a room for self-fulfillment. Right. Yeah, I think that's super important, too, that we don't remember people. It's just like this one dimension, this right. is the thing. Um, I was very fascinated with her spiritualist stuff. I was like, what? This thing? I was like, is this a, did someone just make this up? Because it seemed so out of like left field to me that I was like, wait, what? What we just happened? We talked about it in our yeah. uh, Winchester episode because that's one of the reasons she moved and built the house is because she went yes. to a spiritualist. Yes. And she was like, the ghost of everybody that's died by the Winchester <laughs> rifle, they're mad at you. Supposedly, again, history. <laughs> I love the accent that you gave to that. <laughs> to make I, I had the drama. Point. It was very ghoulish. The drama. <laughs> yes, I I'm sorry, past <laughs> spiritualist. But it was it such is. a beautiful sentiment, it really, because she was talking about doing, like, creating like, candles and all this for the children, and she was yeah. doing it for the children. I'm like, oh, huh, wow, okay, I wonder what that actually looks like in that 19th century to sit down and be like, okay, these are the things I'm going to teach you mm-hmm. about spiritualism and and communicating with the dead, which, by the way, yes, that is the beginning of a lot of horror movies. I also want to say, it's really funny to me, Annie, how uh, 
careful you are of offending the spiritualists. Because I don't really know. I mean, I don't really know how many spiritualists are listening to this episode right you now. Never but know. <laughs> they could be listening from the past. I will say they claim right. they claim her real hard. Like I found some information uh, on the sites, and they're claiming. They love what she did. They, yeah. have, they see her as a great part of their history. So yeah, maybe. So yeah, I, I just I find it funny because Annie's definitely like I don't want them coming after me. But I do. I will Sitting say that them. this is not a value judgment on like what she did or what mm-hmm. I thought as a spiritualist. Oh, if you know me personally, uh, <laughs> very into history, also very into woo. Um, so <laughs> did you say very into woo? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's a room for all of those things right. in life and we're not judging anybody. No, who, I found it fascinating. Yeah, we're not judging We're not judging the lovely Harriet E. Wilson for um, participating in those things. It's just a part of her story that must be told and it's an interesting part of her story. I think it's a lovely part. <laughs> yeah, I'm and I lie. think we forget at that time in spiritualism it was really big after the Civil War as well because so many people died and, and people wanted to find some kind of closure mm-hmm. with their loved ones. And I think we just forget that with all of our kind of modern technology and understanding and figuring out how things work, how frightening it must have been. I often think about this with disease yeah. when you just didn't know what was causing things mm-hmm. and you were trying to like, okay, maybe it's that, maybe it's mm-hmm. this thing. And so it is, again, context, always important. Right. Yeah, I, I guess I, I never really put those two things together, um, that time frame, to be honest, because I'm like, historically, I'm just looking at things very historically and moving on, mm-hmm. and you see events and move on. But yeah, I guess that's kind of what happens. That makes sense, because you need an answer. You need to know why, what was the purpose. But at the same time, yeah, because it's also dramatized for us now, moviegoers yeah, and, and sure. all of that. Yeah, that is kind of like, <laughs> yeah. it, you do put it on a se- separate realm of, oh, this is in movies and this is in this. So, right. yeah, to see it in context to actual person, I'm like, oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow, okay, that's cool. Like, that's how this happened. Right. Like, I can look at a specific instance of right. a life right. and understand how a person can move, get to that point. But, yeah, and her the excerpts of that book were really, really... Well written, like mm-hmm. her dialogue. There's only I did I did not read the book. I'm not going to take claim to that, but I definitely read parts of it. That I'm like, wow, yeah, she did. She really put into a lot of thought of, or was able. She was just talented. Period. Because I'm not really good at dialogue in any <laughs> general writing, but like to have be able to read that and being like, yeah, I can absolutely see that moment. She did a fantastic job. Yeah, really good at visualizing. That's powerful. Um, mm-hmm. Creating images for people to try to understand and empathize because right, right. I have to imagine that empathy was a big part of this that she right. was trying to pull out of people because she wanted people to help her. She right. wanted people to read the book in such an urgent way. She wanted her For child. such an urgent reason. Yeah. Right. And to write that book where she, like the time and place she existed. Ooh, yes. Yeah. I'm like, ooh, I need a writing schedule. I'm going to get up at 5.30 in the morning. <laughs> I'm going to write my novel every day. And she's like, I'm working this. I'm going here. I'm doing this. I'm also not in the greatest health. And I'm like writing my book the whole time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm like, I think I'll just sleep and stay in bed until right. 6.30 today. <laughs> well, and with all the <laughs> obstacles of that time, too. Did you say 6.30? Because that makes me feel bad. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we know, no need to talk about yeah, that. We don't, don't need to, to talk about that. It's like, wait, what just happened? <laughs> <laughs> and I do think um, one thing I wanted to mention before we end, I do think like the fact that it was rediscovered right. and uncovered is exciting in some ways. In some ways, sad in other ways is what I'm meaning to say. But we've talked before about uh, Wikipedia and how it's only, I think, 17% women. And that's like, no way is that true. No way is that the case. 
that only 17% of Wikipedia entries should be women of history. So uh, just a reminder that we don't know everything. There's a lot of things that have been lost, but there's hope for them to be recovered. Yes. So I find that exciting. And it can be you. It can be you. (gasps) Anybody. Yes. Those rare bookstores. Yes, and um, I'm a big proponent of those uh, edit-a-thons with Wikipedia in specific. Yeah. Um, And if you live in... Most places have them. You can find a place that does them if that's something you're interested in but are a little tentative to do by yourself. Highly recommend. Get those women in Wikipedia. I love it. (laughs) Yes. Um, All right. Well, it was a pleasure as always, Eves. Where can the good listeners find you? Oh, all the usual places. So at This Day in History class on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And my name is Eves Jeff Coach. Again, Eve Steph. I, like <laughs> I do that all the time. I pause as if I don't know. My own name. <laughs> I have to think about it sometimes. Uh, uh, she was just enunciating. It's like cool. Yeah, cool, I cool, was. Cool. I, so I, I get very many different things for my name. So uh, right. I get Jess Coat sometimes, and you can also find me personally on Twitter at Eve Steph Coat. Yeah, and that's it. Yay! Thank you. Yeah, and definitely go check check all that stuff out. It's awesome. And if you want to contact us, you can email us at stuffmediamomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can also find us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast and on Instagram at Stuff I'm Never Told You. Thanks, as always, to our super producer, Andrew Howard. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff Mom Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hold up. 